You're listening to Two Sides of Phi, a podcast that follows two lifelong friends as they seek financial independence and to retire early. I'm Eric, and I'm joined by my friend Jason, who reached Phi in 2020. And this is our story. Hey, Eric here with Two Sides of Phi, just checking in to set up this episode. If you've done any kind of reading around in the FIRE community online, you've surely run across the Retirement Manifesto written by Fritz Gilbert, who retired when he was 55. Jason and I have actually taken a lot of inspiration and guidance from his writings and his work on his blog, specifically the Bucket Drawdown Strategy. So if you haven't read that, be sure to check that out. He recently wrote a post called The 10 Steps to Make Sure You Have Enough Money to Retire that really resonated with both of us. And we wanted to use it as a jumping off point for a discussion. Why don't we just kick it off and go right into number one, which is put on your game face. Uh, And what he means by that is you need to take this kind of prep seriously, right? There's a bunch of work to do. and, And Eric, someone who's started approaching this just a couple of years ago on your path to fire. What does this mean to you? What does it make you think about? Yeah, when I see this one, it's uh, it's kind of, of all the 10, it's kind of like the most sort of fluffy, but obviously you got to start somewhere. Um, and one of the, you know, my sort of first exposure to Fritz's blog was via you sharing like multiple things from it. And I one of the things I realized in reading each one of his posts and they're just, they're packed full of so much information. And and this post in particular that we're talking about is super meaty as he calls it. Um, but one of the things I realized is there's just so many layers to this and he's, he goes into a level of detail, which exposes all of those layers. And so when you were first sharing that with me, I found it actually kind of overwhelming, but now that I've been at this for a while and really starting to dig into the topics, his blog and approach to this whole thing, the real methodical approach really does suggest that, you know, prior planning is helpful. And even, even if it all doesn't come at once, um, it's definitely necessary. And you have sort of proven that out, right? You are a big planner by nature. What, what do you think? Yeah, I am a big planner by nature. And the one thing that this process has taught me, I'd be shocked if I don't say it again in our conversation, or starting earlier is really good because constant revision is going to happen. You're just going to learn new things. We certainly realized several times there were costs we hadn't accounted for. So the earlier you start working through that, right, and be serious about it, start with, you know, maybe rough numbers, but refine them as you go, man, that work pays off. Yeah. So game face, I mean, I think we can move on from that one to Number two, which is designing your dream retirement. And yeah. we've actually talked, been talking about this throughout this whole podcast and video series. Um, so for you, how long ago did that start? Wow. Uh, I mean, I think pretty early on, you know, at the concept level, geez, 10 to 15 years ago, but it was so vague to yeah. be totally honest. Yeah. It was just like, we don't want to be doing it this way anymore. Maybe we'll live somewhere much lower cost and we'll just, you know, not do these kinds of careers we're in. We'll do something more low key. And it started to get refined over time, you know, as my career advanced and we started to really come to the realization that we could save and, and, you know, invest in a way that would allow us to retire earlier and maintain a similar lifestyle to what we wanted now. So I think the kind of dreaming and starting to refine it, you know, happened you know, in more detail in kind of the five years before I retired mostly and then getting down to brass tacks, something, you know, things we'll cover farther down. Really, the last couple of years was nailing down those details. So it was definitely was a sequential thing. But it's really, this was, I mean, this was really more of like a, Tim Ferriss calls this like dream lines, um, you know, like testing out mini retirements. Um, For me, this was like actually one of the most enjoyable parts of the process and it's kind of ongoing. And uh, my wife and I use Notion to kind of catalog all of these five sort of components. So there's, I mean, Notion's great. You and I use it to collaborate on this. Um, But we kind of have this little almost like a bucket list. Um, but it doesn't just include things like travel destinations. It also includes, you know, things that we're interested in doing like a photography workshop that I want to take, or, you know, it's a class that Laura wants to take or, you know, things like that. So it's a catalog of all of these opportunities and engagements that maybe we don't have time to do right now, or maybe the budget to do right now, but they're all things that are kind of fitting in this kind of bottle slash bucket list that we can, that really helps us kind of look forward to it a little bit more. And I don't know, do you you maintain something like that? 
it wasn't so specific about you know things that we had wanted to get to and hope we would do. I'd say yeah. we started a little bit higher level, maybe just with priorities. Okay. Like, yeah. what does retiring mean in terms of how often do we think we want to travel and what yeah. kind of travel do we want to do, and you know what style of living can we see ourselves doing? You know, a no, pure nomadic versus right. home base and you know several longer trips a year. We started with that. And really tried to think about what are the priorities of different things, because I think that ordering exercise is pretty useful because I'm sure as you're finding, you come back to it when you start thinking about numbers, right? oh, yeah. the budget, the spending. But starting yeah. with those concepts and those things like to your point that you have wanted to get to or would like to look into that you've never even touched. This is a good exercise for that. But also, I wonder for you, when you first got into retirement and I know Fritz speaks about this too. Um, that pull to consult and continue working and continue earning. I wonder if this designing your dream retirement as this kind of, you know, guiding principle, this kind of map for what you actually want, yeah. isn't something that you could also refer back to and say, well, how does like me taking this consulting job fit into the retirement that I was designing for myself, like this intentional plan? I just like that that can yeah. act act as kind of this overall ordering system that keeps you from committing to things that maybe aren't aren't going to make you the happiest. I don't know. Yeah, <laughs> I, I think that's a, a, a fantastic idea. I mean, not, not to go put on old corporate hat again, but it feels <laughs> like you could actually formulate a, a vision statement right. in this phase. And just and literally have that written. And when those pulls come, and they will, right, for, for many of you, um, you can go back and look at that and say, how does this fit in there? Am I going to update my vision yeah. of what post-fire life looks like? Or does this not fit and I shouldn't even consider it? Uh, that's a great idea. And I also think about when I think about this, uh, I also see it as this living document that it's going to change over time. Like yeah. what I'm envisioning for my ideal retirement, the day I get there you know, it's probably going to, it's probably going to change and it'll change over time, Absolutely. you know, and obviously the older you are, maybe the less travel you do. And so you have different activities and interests and it'll be interesting for me to see how yours changes, um, or your vision of what retirement was versus reality and you know, how you square those. Cause I've seen in the past year now that you've been retired, th things have changed, right? Totally. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And I freely admit that this, I'm still <laughs> when, what I feel like is a very chaotic stage right that first year yeah. i mean it feels like it it's i'm just getting on a path now i'm not on it i'm exploring and so you're right i think coming back to it is going to be pretty interesting yeah cool okay so number three is track your current spending now obviously this one resonates <laughs> with me and we've talked about that before but you know just documenting your current spending your expenses etc is a tremendously important starting point eric when you see this one <laughs> knowing your fear of budgeting or your dislike of budgeting how does this one strike you this is my wife's job this is i i told uh -oh. i have like zero interest in doing this and yeah, so you do. i can just do the broad brush and feel comfortable and okay with it but I, like i it is one of those things that i recognize as being important but if i have to pick a point of departure from this post here it's like, how much do you need to track it? So I, I went and downloaded his, his tracking sheet, which is like, it's immense. It's like overwhelming. It's important, I'm sure. But that is yes. not something I'm probably ever going to fill out. And I can only imagine yours is, probably has even more lines in it than his does. Did you use his to, to develop I didn't yours? use his. You used uh, YNAB, I like I like his framework. Yes, I used YNAB. I used yeah. You Need a Budget, which is a program. Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, uh, so. Wait, does I that, can you just t tell me, remind me, yeah. does that actually pull in expenses? Because we use our credit card yes. for everything. So It does. Okay. So it would automatically kind of put those things in categories and, and I could see what that looks like. Yeah. Yeah. Yes, you can do it completely manually or you can do it completely automated or somewhere in between yeah. by accounts, et cetera. And people have different preferences. I do everything automatically and just check the categorization. It's it's similar but more powerful than, say, what a piece of software like Mint does. Yeah. So if people are familiar with that concept, it's just like that with a lot more capability and true budgeting, not just tracking. This gave you a degree of certainty and freedom and just comfort with your plan. Is that right? Com completely. Yeah. Uh, if you if you dial the clock back, you know, more than three years for me, we had the pay yourself first strategy. Yeah. We didn't do budgeting. We did our investments. We made our commitments. And then the money that remained was the things just much more discretionary. When we started to really get serious about planning the numbers for uh, post fi 
Using software like YNAB, we tracked over a series of months what our true spending practices were, understood how to categorize them so that we could just capture what our actual expenses were on and a are monthly you, basis. Are you still doing that? I am. Uh, I am. And that will kind of come back to <laughs> the next item when we Tedious. talk about actual spending. All right. Let me ask you a question because as I was digging through this and looking through the information on this post, um, it came, I mean, I don't know why this was a blind spot for me, but when we're talking about setting an annual spend number, is that after tax? Mine is my true actual spending, full stop. Oh, okay. What, what, it's what money goes out. Paying bills, right? The mortgage, um, discretionary, dining out, just true. What, as you said, credit card expenses almost entirely, and you know some withdrawals from my bank accounts directly, right, to make payments. Okay, so actual spending. Okay, so actual spending means you need to earn more than that by whatever your you know your effective tax rate is, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> so. Like, am I just missing something in setting my number here that I, if I'm using an actual spend number and multiplying that by 25, um, because the, you know, as you start digging into some of these other calculators that he has, you know, your retirement cash flow calculator, for example, like obviously to net a certain, you know, annual sp- spending figure, you need to, you know, add tax on top of that. Am mm-hmm. I just like being completely stupid about this? <laughs> no. And honestly, I don't do my projections in that way. You okay. know, I, based on the portfolio makeup we have, which yeah. is something that sort of comes up later in this discussion, uh, at a certain size and allocation, you expect, a, you know, in a, in a normal year, you know, the, the market is in its normal happy place, which it is, you know, 80% of the time, it, you, un, you can predict that your returns will cover right your plan if you're withdrawing in the way with the safe withdrawal okay. rate that we've discussed before and we're going to talk about again here later good because so I, I feel actually like... look at the effect of taxation okay on those earnings specifically i mean even though it does uh, impact that i mean the, it does this course. is one of the things that when i start to get into some of these details i think wow i crack open this door and all of a sudden i haven't been thinking about these 10 variables and yeah that could change the plan significantly, right? I think so. I think for me, it's more like anytime we think about these multipliers, you know, like 25 times your yeah. income, right, 4% rule, there's lots of other things baked in, in there already that, you know, yes, they're not exposed on the surface, but there are assumptions built in there and, you know, under standard circumstances, it's not, they're not characterizing them doesn't have a negative net impact on the accuracy. Yeah. I guess is what I'm saying. Okay. Right? I don't, I'm not saying they're unimportant. I, they're, they're vital. But, you know, the finer tuning of income and tax brackets, there, there are strategies in there that are important for health insurance, right? Uh, yeah, it's know. just I, interesting to me because, like, if I wanted to net 50 grand a year, for example, a hypothetical 50 grand, you know, tax-wise, I'm going to have to withdraw more than that, you know? If, and if I'm cashing out stocks, for example, that's like, you know, that's a bigger sell there. Um, and yeah. why I did not think about that until I saw it written out like this was, I, I don't know why I didn't re- fully perceive that, but I don't know. So yeah. we're up to number four here, forecast yep. your retirement spending. It's one of those sort of uh, preliminary steps that you take, right? When you're trying to figure out how much you actually need to save. What does it, I mean, this is one that I dug into and, and downloaded his retirement cash flow model. And this was a big revelation for me in, in actually seeing all the years mapped out from, you know, whatever year you're going to retire to let's say 95 or in your case, a hundred, right? I like having the spreadsheet that actually he provided because I can just plug into that and, and it's, and yes. then start working and adjusting things. And he's, he actually has it set up. So there's four different tabs. So, you know, you can do four different scenarios. If I, you know, social security looks like this and, you know, yes. other things look like that and, and you can model it like that. Um, <clears throat> it is still a little bit kind of broad brush in a sense, um, in terms of, you know, it's not like nuanced in terms of how you might pull on these investments, which could have a big effect on how much tax yes. you pay, for example. But like, do you use a retirement cash flow model or have you used one or is yours just kind of more rudimentary? 
Yeah, much more the latter. Okay. I have looked at what Fritz has, just as you mentioned you're doing. Uh, I'm really interested in it and, and having a look at how my specific portfolio and the things I'm thinking about play out using some different scenarios. I mean, I'll be candid. This is one of the reasons, this topic is one of the reasons I have continued so far to work with financial advisors. Yeah, okay. To be able to throw different scenarios out, get feedback on them. So they run the numbers. Do modeling. They do run numbers for you? Like, yeah. Okay, so they would model this. And I'm, I have to presume that they would do it in much more granular detail. Yeah, and they'll do it some using different approaches yeah. and talk about the merits of each. And, and again, that's sort of that you know, thinking about the CFO mentality, right? You know, you're running a company, you you want to know different ways things could go yeah. with certain market conditions. And, you know, it's also an independent third party. That's not to say that that is the only way to do it or it is the most secure way to do it, but something that has given me comfort. But as I dig in more and more, right, what do I have time to do now? Sit with the numbers even more. Uh, so did I do a, a deep analysis in this area pre-fire? I actually didn't. And I would recommend that people do because, you know, just from my work already with a tool like this, I see the value and the comfort you get from, you know, being able to model in different ways. So, yes, I thought this is an important one to me. And just the overall concept of tracking, you know, forecasting retirement spending yeah. period, because it's really a combination of a couple of the ideas we talked about already. And it is what are the things that are prioritized for you, what you're spending now and how do you see that spending coming together in retirement? Is it different from how you spend today working in your career where you live pre retirement? If you're going to move, well, those expenses might change. Yeah. What are you and Laura doing? What stage are you in this? I mean, we are starting to fill in the line items. And it, like I said, it is kind of her job. And she, I think that gets, she wants to do, by the way, just to she make wants to do it. Right. And because she, she likes the numbers, she's data driven. It gives her a level of comfort like you that the plan, we can execute a certain kind of plan. One thing that I re found really interesting reading through this that I hadn't fully captured in our projections was this idea of lumpy spending. Um, and I think you do a similar thing. You're projecting out, okay, I know my roof has a 25 year, you know, life expectancy. So I know I'm going to take the cost of replacing that roof and amortize it over the lifetime of that roof. Same thing with computers. And like we were just talking today, washer and dryer, like, okay, our washer and dryer is 15 years old. That's like, that's pretty old. Yeah. <laughs> so, and um, it just brings up all these discussions like new cars. So we were saying, okay, um, what is the next car? Like a $30,000 purchase? Is it a $15,000 purchase? Is it 45? Right. And do we actually need two cars? And so it, I think one of the things for us right now in, in our early stage of this, and as we near our five date, it opens those conversations and we clearly said, yeah, we want two cars and, you know, maybe mm -hmm. one of them's just kind of an around the town kind of thing. And maybe one's a truck, you know, feeds back into that. Okay. Designing your retirement. What does that yep. actually look like? So lumpy spending, I feel like even if you didn't characterize it that way, I think you have sinking funds for that, right? I, yeah, I approach this a couple different ways, but don't let that make you think that I feel like I have this nailed and that it's not something I do think about because I <laughs> absolutely do. But there are some things that, you know, you know, as a homeowner and someone who's run a household for a while, you know, you and your wife, you know, the computers are going to break. The car needs to be replaced. Yep. There's going to be auto maintenance. The roof you mentioned, all that stuff is, is fairly predictable uh, that it's going to need uh, to be addressed, not maybe when it's going to happen. So specific large ticket items. I do tend to have sinking funds for where I just kind of allocate potential spending every month and then it's not spent. Great. It just keeps building. And then it, all of a sudden I need it. Where does that and sit, then, by the way? Because I don't think we've talked about this. That it sits, you checking know, account I, or money market? In the or? past, we used to say high yield savings. Oh, right. But yeah. there, there is no high yield savings uh, right now. So I have that stuff that I might need to pay out in a within a couple of week timeline, you know, for example, getting billed in savings. Okay. So I keep that locally yeah. um, as opposed to maybe like dry powder type funding. I would keep, you know, with my uh, money market account with yeah. Fidelity, yeah. for example. So it could be deployed easily. Sure. But for these types of expenses, I either have some items in my um in YNAB that I track this stuff against, like, you know, replacement computer, for example. But then I might have a big bucket for home maintenance that could be a variety of things. The third way is I keep a, I, I always keep an emergency fund. Oh, you so still do, I keep, huh? wow. I keep about six months of potential expenses in an emergency fund. If it, you know, and on a percentage basis of the portfolio, right, that's small. So that's not like a opportunity cost type calculation. It's just if we needed something unexpected came up, 
we would have that available. Why not, why not use credit for that? You can, but you're still going to have to free up cash to, to, to pay that, right? So, you know, un, under the guide, the guideline that I kind of use is if you have a planned or reasonable possibility expense in the next 12 to 18 months, you should have that, that cash available. And that's kind of how Damn. I think about it. Okay. Yeah. It's, it'll it's be a interesting. little conservative, but it's not unusual. Yeah. So mm-hmm. number five is pretty straightforward, I think. And yep. that's calculate your net worth. And this is just a great opportunity to look at what are my assets? What are my liabilities? And what is my actual net worth at the present time? Um, Eric, this is something you have definitely been doing for a while. You've already yeah. referenced one of our exchanges on New Year's Day about it. How do you think about net worth calculation and the importance of it? So for me, it's what gets measured gets managed. And I think, you know, just the fact that you're checking in with it regularly. And actually, I check in with it sort of more than once a year. Uh, but that's just because I'm in a different phase of this whole thing than you are. Um, and for me, it's just kind of a little goalpost that I can look at and, you know, less valuable now that I own my home. You know, there's there's a lot of things on, on the good side of the balance sheet. So, you know, I don't have a lot of liabilities out there. And so it's just, you Great. know, uh, I, I don't know that it's that effective a tool. So um, I do think it's nice to, to have it and, and look at it. But, you know, for example, I've never included like you, you know, the kids college accounts. Um, of course never include anything that's not that I don't consider to be liquid uh, or convertible asset to you know, contribute to supporting me in retirement, just like you don't, yep. right? I mean, you're not including your house in this. You're not including college savings plans or things like that. I'm not, you know, including, I mean, the vehicles are on it, but quite honestly, it's, I, I just don't even count them. <laughs> yeah. And you? to your point, I think about this, I think the way that Fritz articulates it in the article, the, all of that is included in your net worth. However, you're going to have to call those things out and subtract them later when you yeah. start thinking about what is my actual assets that I can use to model, do I have enough money to retire? It's like so, liquid net worth, right? I mean, when yeah. I think of, I don't know if that's the technical definition, but it's how I think of it. It's like, okay, what are the assets that are going to contribute to my number? And right. it doesn't include my house or you know any of these kind of hard assets that I know I would never unload. I mean- I, and, and that's the way to think about it, yeah. I think. It's, yes, my car's value is a part of my net worth, but am I going to sell my car to pay my monthly expenses? Well, no, of course not, not. Uh, unless it was urgent. So right. yeah, no, but, but if you're not already doing this, this is just a great reminder that it's an essential element of projecting, do I have enough, you know, projecting the answer to that question, do I have enough money to retire? What are my current assets? I mean, honestly, I have a spreadsheet that Laura and I use for our monthly financial meetings. And that basically includes all the things, you know, on the balance sheet that are in the plus four our retirement number like okay and we just use that to say all right are we on track for our goals are we meeting our savings goals and i think in some ways when you're on the hyper saving path it's just a lot you know it's just kind of a tracking device more yes. than anything and for you i guess you know on the flip side of that is maybe it's the canary <laughs> right well and the, uh, yeah and i want to respond to that because you know when you said and correctly you said I've been looking at it annually. That's true. I did move to annually after years and years of doing it quarterly. Okay. But now, you know, I'm thinking a lot more about the numbers and I'm realizing that I'm already looking at, you know, account values and things on a regular basis, you know, generally monthly. So that's a good opportunity to just update the net worth statement, you know, maybe monthly, perhaps at least quarterly, because canary to your point right as market conditions change if we need to make any adjustments in strategy yeah. you know certainly a severe downturn might we even change our spending approach that's a very realistic thing particularly people who are considering a lean fire lifestyle you would want to do that yeah cool number six is determining your safe withdrawal rate and you are an expert at this by now you have been that. executing the plan and this is something that I'm looking forward and projecting to. You've given me a lot of advice on this, actually, because when you first start doing that basic calculation, the 25 times your annual spend, right, the big broad brush kind of rule, um, actually requires more nuance and more thought and care. And that's where this with safe withdrawal rate comes in. So you've done, I'm sure, a number of projections. Tell me about how this has impacted your number. Yeah, no, I have done a lot of work in this. It was absolutely the thing I worried about the most in the year leading up to pulling the trigger on leaving my job. It's the thing that more frequently I would categorize as led to some concern. But, you know, I've, I've, I think I've largely gotten past that now. Um, Why, though? 
Well, let's talk about that. So, so first of all, you know, sequence of sequence of return risk is something that I think about a lot. You know, if there are negative market conditions, big downturns, etc., in the first few years, many people say, you know, five years after, you know, as you start withdrawing in the first five years of starting to withdraw, those can have, you know, major implications on your portfolio's viability, right. i.e., will it last? Will it last your projected lifetime? So, Choosing a withdrawal rate is vital because you, know, you don't want to go too big too early because if you have an event, a major market downturn in those early years, that's the worst time to be, you know, you don't want to be withdrawing from your portfolio, from your corpus, right, from the main uh, assets, your equities, for example, in your and portfolio. This so and this becomes a real big issue for people who are retiring much earlier than we are. It's, it's yeah. an issue for us. We're, you know, nearing 50, right? We're late 40s. Um, we but are almost pe there. People who retire in their 30s or their 20s. I mean, yeah. this is uh, this is something you really need to pay attention to. And, um, you know, so some of those rules that were designed for people taking maybe an early retirement um, yeah. don't really apply in the same way. Yeah. And, and Eric, this is this we should acknowledge. It's a bit of a contentious topic. Yeah. Many people <laughs> feel very strongly about the four percent rule. And there's some great literature on it. There's an updated study since the original study. Do just do your homework. I, I think it's a very reasonable thing to start your back of the envelope calculations with a 4% withdrawal rate, but understand what that means, what the assumptions are, because as Fritz says, you know, he thinks about a world where at his age bracket, you know, 3% is, you know, more conservative and 4% is more aggressive, right? Presently, I'm below 3% and that's, you know, below where I thought I would be. And some of that is just where the market is performing these days. And that's right? me. There's a big... But is that because you spent less or uh, it, I have kept my spending to my budget? OK, so it's not it's because of market performance. You said it's because of market conditions. Okay. Yes. Yeah. Um, but you you do need this is the point that we were just talking about in the previous uh, item in his blog. This is where you absolutely have to exclude your assets that you're not willing to liquidate. So when you talk about a four percent withdrawal rate, it's four percent of your assets that are, you know, you said that are liquid. Right. right? You know, whether you're using the bucket strategy that we'll talk about or something else, you need to be accounting for that in that sort of set of assets. So, yeah, to answer your question, this really is a risk tolerance line item, right? How confident are you? How, how bold are you? Yeah. And I think when I'm, I'm thinking about my path, I assume at least a 50 year more lifespan, which is above certainly the average for people born when we were born and at our current age. You're an optimist. <laughs> yeah, I'm gonna assume the worst case, which means those funds have to last 50 years. And so I am naturally drawn to a lower withdrawal rate. And the reason I've been feeling better about sequence of return risk is I've, because of the market, my withdrawal rate is below 3%, and I don't think we've been struggling to keep to our budget. So I know that there's guardrails built in there, and if we had to back off, we could. So it's not keeping me up at night. Do I think about it? And do I think I'll have a little party when I hit five years <laughs> post retire early? Yes, oh, I, I thought do. it was 10 years, man. I thought you were going uh, 10. That's my ultra conservative <laughs> yeah. number. But I, I think that's a little it's a nobody agrees with me on that. Well, for your but, side of FI, it is paying attention to, you know, your your post FI. So you're paying attention to what conditions, how conditions are changing, what the portfolio looks like real time, course correcting, yeah. adapting and changing from my side of FI. That's the thing that's setting my actual number, right? My right. like, when am I going to hit the number? And that's based on the withdrawal rate that I'm projecting. So, yeah. and how has that gone since the time we started talking <laughs> about it to where you are now a couple of years later? Yeah. I mean, I started off with the 4% rule thinking, oh, good. And then you and I had a conversation at one point and you're like, well, you're not using 4%, right? <laughs> I said, I did. Well, yeah. <laughs> Um, and I think this was one of those opportunities where you sent me this post or another post where, you know, he had written like, well, you might want to think a little more conservatively. And of course, when you do that and you dial it back to three and a half percent or three percent, the number changes in a real big way. And I don't think of myself as a risk averse person, but uh, you can't ignore some of the numbers there. And I'm totally. always happy to dial it up a little bit. Um, if things go well, but also I want to have a plan that works like out of the gate 
even given some worst case scenarios here. So I, I'm like, I'm definitely more, to, you know, obviously it's changed the number up and I've changed the number yeah. up a couple of different times. And that has been based on not only withdrawal rate, but also our spending. And so it's like kind of a amalgamation of all of these different topics that have influenced changing that number. So for my side of FI, you better pay attention to this and, and don't assume 4% is going to work for you, especially if you're younger. Great yeah, starting totally. point. Understand why that is or isn't the right answer for you and go from there. I mean, there's some people like Financial Samurai. Mm-hmm. Have you ever have you ever listened to his I podcast? Have. I'm aware of his position. Whoa. Those are some big numbers there. You know, I mean, he's yeah. talking about withdrawal rates like way. I mean, I actually can't remember what his is. If it's it's like, like a fractional percent. It's, isn't it? it's, it's a like fraction not, of it. Right. Yeah. It's, that's it's less than one percent. It's like what? <laughs> Okay, so Eric, number seven is estimate your retirement income. Figure out what kind of money you can plan for coming in from all sources, your investments, Social Security, if you're in the U.S., uh, other things. How do you think about this item given your stage of pre-fi? It's hard. This is a hard one for me because the business is going to continue to exist and earn money into the future. And so I think it's probably similar to, you know, people who have side hustles or, you know, other income streams that maybe it fluctuates a little bit. Um, and so for, for this one, I've taken a conservative approach to modeling this. So we talked earlier about the retirement cash flow model. This is a spot where, you know, it gives you, you know, places to input this income. Um, but I, I have honestly just started getting into this. Um, and one of the interesting things I was trying to project out because I noticed it was a um, sort of row in his spreadsheet was social security income. And yeah. so Laura and I were talking about that. And just, I know you've said in the past that you don't really account for that. Um, and you treat that almost like it's, it's a little bit of a buffer or a contingency. And as I started looking into it, you know, if you go to the social security uh the government website here in the US, they'll give you a projection based on, you know, yes, they're going to fill in the blank between however, whatever age you are now and your full retirement age. And um, that's that presumes you're you'll never make less than what you're making right now. But the full Social Security calculation, your benefit is calculated on the highest 35 years that you're contributing to the system. Um, And so there is some calculus to be made there, especially if you're nearing that 35 year mark, because you could substantially change the benefit, how much income you're receiving. Um, that's right. Just by working another year, for example, you know, because you may knock off one of the sort of low end, um, years of earning and that could change the benefit that you get. So I wish I had a better answer on this, um, other than just to say we're building our assets and drawdown strategy in a way that, you know, we're going to be We'll talk about this in the next point, but, um, you know, we would be drawing on the savings that we've been uh, compiling and assuming no additional income. Any income is gravy, Um, but it does get complicated when if you're buying health care on, you know, subsidized health care, like not being able to project what the income for the business is, um, like if it continues on what it is right now and 90% of what I'm earning is from passive income. Right that changes the healthcare equation pretty substantially. And so I, I wish I had a better way of modeling this. Like, I, I just yeah. don't feel like I've done a very good job of that. Although if it keeps earning at this level, then it's, it just makes the retirement plan that much better. Like if I don't actually have to yeah. draw down anything, it's like, well, I shouldn't even worry about it then. But um, I think for most people, you do need to think about all these different income sources. How about you? Are you really discounting yeah. social security? Uh, I would say that I, I don't assume it exists in its present form. So I know that maybe yeah. the projections I'm seeing uh, from the the website and others that use the same data from Social Security um, may not be accurate. So it's it's probably too far to say that I consider it 100% upside if I get anything. But I absolutely model my portfolio without any Social Security. Yeah. And. I also do model it with it coming in, you know, as expected and being able to claim it at whatever age I want to model. Is so it like, tools seven, like are you using it like yeah, 70? 70. Or, you, yeah. yeah. Okay. Yeah. So tools like new, new retirement and, you know, personal capital and, you know, Fritz's sped, spreadsheet all do similar things and that they let you look at the impact of different income streams right. that become available to you at certain ages. I like so that. I do do that. And I think that is a valuable exercise. And like I say, if you're already looking at this article, the the spreadsheet that's linked in there is, is a good tool. And if you can make it work with, you know, nothing 
as a side hustle. I mean, you, yeah. I don't know. That's kind of, uh, that gives me a little more confidence, but also people who are looking to, uh, do a kind of glide path strategy, um, where they're looking to fill in with side hustles. That's a great tool to use to say, okay, well, what Definitely. does it actually have to be? Like, where, where do I, you know, where do I cross over the path where I, I don't actually have to do anything anymore? It's like super yeah, useful. That's a great point. I like that. Um, so when it comes to estimating retirement income, you're someone who's done, I don't know if it's cons- you consider consulting a side hustle or what, but you know, you have, you're working at this winery, you have some, you know, potential for earning with the drone or making some video stuff. What do you do with your side hustle income? I mean, is, do you even count it? Do you, are you modeling it or are you just treating it like spending money? Yeah, it's the latter. Yeah. So for both Lori and I, we consider all that as upside money. We don't model it. We don't assume for it. Um, some of it we may spend, you know, discretionary, um, you know, travel or something, you know, not part of our vacation budget. Um, some of it we just keep and, uh, have for, you know, rainy day fund or something like that. Um, so we don't, it's not so consistent for either of us that it's something that I would feel comfortable modeling, but, uh, yeah. And it's not, you know, versus our, versus our spending, it's not a huge percentage anyhow. So it's, uh, yeah, it's just kind of intermittent funding that we largely bank or spend for just fun stuff. I, I think the intention is that by outlining all your sources of income, because sometimes it is complex, right? There there could be annuities, there could be yeah, pensions, yeah, pensions sometimes, social security, um, uh, a side hustle you plan for X number of years, but then you plan on it going away and you reach a certain age. So it's a tool that allows you to, you know, numerically demonstrate that that plan will your plan will continue to work yeah. for its duration with its different streams of income. So it is a useful exercise and it goes a level beyond the more kind of finger to the wind. Well, if I have you know, my three and a half percent yeah. withdraw, my investments will cover it. Yeah. And it's, it's a good idea. And certainly it's a, it gives comfort to model your retirement income. It, it, and it, there are it, a lot of tools to help you with it. It did remind me that we have a, uh, Laura has a 457 that she's going to have to take an equal distribution. She can take as a lump sum when she leaves or 10 equal dis- distributions. And the, yes. I was thinking, okay, that this is a good place for that to fall into. Definitely. Yeah. Okay, so number eight and number nine, I feel like we should just talk about these together because they're so interrelated. So you're going to with develop a drawdown strategy and then also your retirement paycheck. Now, I feel like you are the expert in this category. So obviously you have a means of, you know, withdrawing and there are several different like kind of drawdown strategies. Um, so why don't you talk about w- what you chose and why did you choose to do it that way? Harkening back to my earlier answer, this topic is a perfect example of why presently I've still chosen to get outside assistance uh-huh. with the strategy. Uh, it, that doesn't mean I'm not an active participant in planning for it. Um, and I may well take it over, but to date I've gotten some support. I basically use a variant of the bucket strategy that Fritz writes a lot about in this article and elsewhere. And he's got a a really good three part series on how to implement and, and manage the bucket strategy where you have basically cash in bucket one, uh, you know, bonds and other, you know, more sort of secure income generating assets in bucket two. And bucket three is the equities, you know, the stock, the engine that drives your portfolio. Long-term growth, right? Long-term growth, yeah. yeah. And so... what I don't understand the middle bucket, though, as much. Yeah. <laughs> so, I mean, you... Well, so you're, you're spending... Why not two buckets? Your, well, you're, so you're spending your cash. So, so there's a lot yeah. of hedge involved. You're spending your cash, and then you need to refill that cash bucket. And how do you refill it? Well, if stocks are up and bonds are not... Well, that third bucket is there to help you do that, right? If the market's way up, you can take some gains from that. Um, you but also, uh, what if you're a JL Collins guy? You got stocks and that's it. <laughs> well, I, I guess you're going to have to sell stocks. You don't really, all right. The, right. The, other so the, path, the other path, Eric, I should at least say, some people use dividends for that purpose. Yeah. Um, they don't automatically reinvest dividends. They use that dividend income as part of their cash flow. Yep. So that is another strategy. I do not. I reinvest my dividends. Okay. Presently. So that could be like that. That's like kind of the second bucket then. Yeah. 
Yeah. And I was going to say, if, if bonds are up, then you would necessarily sell bonds, right? right. If, if there's a major stock market downturn, you are not going to refill bucket one with selling stock because that's, of course, the worst time to sell your stock is in a down market. Yeah. Yeah. So the but the way that that's set up is very dependent upon your particular situation, your asset location, right? How much of your assets are in an after-tax brokerage right. account versus retirement accounts? Because you and I. If you were retired today and you will be in a few years, we can't touch those retirement assets without right. paying penalty. And that makes no sense in a fire context. So after tax accounts, for example, are where we need to withdraw from now. And so the way my buckets are allocated in that after tax bucket versus my retirement assets, you know, Roth or traditional is going to be different. So it's a very individualized question. I think lumping these two together for this discussion is a really great idea. It's also something that warrants its own discussion outside of yeah. you know, a kind of review of this article. But it's super important because you don't want to be thinking about this after the fact. <laughs> well, right? and it, <laughs> this kind of a thing, it, this is one of those things that you brought to me and you're like, hey, have you thought about, you know, this this bucket strategy and, you know, how because I think I asked you that kind of rudimentary question. I was like, how do you get paid? in yeah. retirement. Like how do you execute the plan? And you told me about the bucket strategy and I thought, okay, well that cash bucket then as I read this post is up to three years of spending. I'm like yeah. three years of spending is a fair bit of cash to put in an account. <laughs> right. Yeah. And so it's not something it's, this isn't a plan you can actually execute in a short period of time. If you're of any normal means, I think, you know, it's going to take you time to build up that cash bucket before you move into, you know, fire. Right. Correct. And so yeah, you're, you're spot on. And that's one of the things Fritz talks about, right? He started putting money into bucket one in his last few years of work. And yeah. if I'm remembering correctly, he even was one of the people that did the so-called one more year right. before he pulled the trigger. So he could, uh, you know, capture certain expenses he wanted to that were part of his planned retirement, right? Uh, getting a fifth wheel uh, and a truck, right, to do the travel he wanted to do was part of that. But, you know, you've got to make sure as part of that run-up period, you're filling bucket one because you're not just going to come up with those funds, to your point, overnight. Right. And that is certainly one of the things we did. And we strive to, to refill that bucket one with um, 12 to 18 months, Okay. Of cash. I was going to ask you and about that. In addition, we have six months of dry powder uh, expenses. So it's really about two years that we maintain in cash presently. Okay. Wow. When that bucket's completely full. Right. But obviously, we've been drawing down presently. Because stock, stocks are up. So you're, yeah. you're selling stocks, right? Yep. Current, yeah. Current. And not presently, right? It's not like he does it, I believe he said three or four times a year. Yeah. He goes through and does refills. We've been on more like a one or two times, but it's only our first year. So I can't really give you long-term data. Okay. Uh, that's yeah. just where we are so far. But I mean, that is the strategy, right? If yes. market is doing well, you're going to sell, sell your, you know, the things that are up, right? Precisely. Yeah. Okay. You, you know, one of the things I was, I was thinking about, Eric, when I was answering your early question is how important asset location is yeah. because there is this concept of retirement poor that you have to be very <laughs> mindful of. You know, you can, totally. if you get to c contributing the max to your Roth and then you move on to your traditional 401ks and the like, Easy to but do. you're not, you're not accounting for, uh, after tax, uh, accounts, brokerage accounts, and you're retiring before 59 and a half, you won't have money to spend. I had, so, this was a total blind spot for me until you mentioned yeah, talk it. to me about that. Again, see, Imagine how <laughs> completely stupid and uninformed I would be had I not had these chats with you. So I'm totally appreciative of it. But yeah, I mean, if you if you're not saving in that after tax like brokerage account, like you better have a pretty good plan for unlocking the other assets. And that's that again takes at least five years worth of planning, right? If you're if yeah. you're doing conversions and I mean Correct. it's it's a lot of work. Um, or um, if you have the ability to do so, you know, saving in an after tax brokerage account actually provides a ton of flexibility. And that's right. You know, you, you have to build fewer sort of ladders to retirement. I mean, I'm going to retire potentially when I'm 51. So, you know, if we reach FI at our projected schedule. So, you know, my window between 51 and 59 and a half is, is a lot shorter probably than other people who are considering a fire path. But, you know, that's if, if you're talking 
20 years <laughs> till you get yeah. there, well, you better have a pretty good strategy that that doesn't rely on all the assets that you've locked away, you know, uh, pre-tax. So that's yeah, right. It's great to pay attention to it now. Yeah. And the answer to this, I, I will say as well, because we do have people watching this from from around the world. Your answer will depend on how your country, your municipality handles taxation of retirement funds. There's a variety of different approaches that are out there. We are personally most familiar with the U.S. approach, but I know that some of these concepts are similar in other countries as well. So just be aware. And the, the earlier you can be informed, if you're watching this in your 20s and thinking about, you know, a fire path for yourself, yeah. just sooner than later, it's worth looking into what the structure is, how the taxation is handled, early withdrawals, all of those things are just vitally important to this concept of retirement drawdown in your retirement paycheck. This becomes that much more difficult for someone who's younger because there's a conflict between putting money away pre-tax where it has the yeah. chance to grow all those years unimpeded by taxation, right? And loading up uh, an after-tax or what we call a taxable brokerage account. Um, so you really do want to think about those or that financial order of operations, right? You really, it's to your benefit to get those dollars working for you pre-tax if you can. Um, yeah. so you yeah, know, and yeah, totally. And I don't, great, I mean, there's not an sorry. easy answer there, right? <laughs> there's not, but I mean, we should absolutely plug, uh, the money guy shows financial order of operations. Awesome. Yeah. That is the most concise way I've seen and I'd love to see if others have other resources that we can link in the comments. It's one of the best resources to just concisely show that kind of what is that financial order operations? How should you be allocating your savings, investing at different ages and stages of income, for example? So highly recommend it. We'll we'll link it in the show notes. It's funny, Mike. Um, I was having this conversation with my youngest son the other day. We we're coming back from a job site together. He's working for me this summer. So he has the opportunity to contribute to a Roth. And, you know, That's we were just great. talking about saving and spending and what his habits were and things like that. And um, he mentioned wanting to open, open a brokerage account so he could buy some stocks. And I said, well, you know, I mean, really the thing you want to do given your income, because he's, he earns less than $12,000 a year. So subject to no paying, no tax basically That's right. is like dump that money in a Roth, you know? And, totally. and so it's, it is very situational um, in terms of your age and what your income is and where you are on your path to fire. But it's definitely worth, um, putting all these things sort of in a pot and looking at them together. I mean, that's the great thing about this post is you can run through these steps so that you're going to ensure that you have, you know, enough money to retire on, but it also brings up all of these issues. It, it brings up all the relevant issues that you need to pay attention to, which is gr great if you're someone like me who has a ton of blind spots. So three years of cash is what Fritz keeps in his cash bucket. You have two. That just seems like a lot of money to have on the sidelines. Like, am I being crazy about this? <laughs> well, I mean, it's very easy to look at anything as opportunity cost. And it, and it is in a sense, but which opportunity would you rather trade? <laughs> Having to sell stocks in a down market because you don't have enough cash sooner, right? You're, you're buying yourself security and comfort and potentially buying yourself um, you're lowering your risk of I get making it. a financial decision you don't want to be forced to make. The three years was based on the um, kind of worst case scenario of S&P 500 recovering to a prior yes, level after a bear market, right? Yeah. But, so let me tell you how I handle it. Well, how often I does have, that happen? <laughs> I have, but it doesn't matter if it happens to you, right? Those people that retired in the you know early 2000s. I get it. but right? That's yeah. scary. So here, so my approach is, at, and, and you know, Fritz has a pretty big bucket too as well, in my brokerage account, which is, you know, my major tool to use for still another 11 years at this point, right? As we record yeah. this, I'm 48 like you. Um, so I have an outsized um, brokerage account yeah. as a result, yep. proportionally speaking. Um, I My bucket one, we talked about cash, right? I have two years, but I have easily three years and potentially more um, in sort of bucket two in my brokerage account. Oh, yeah. So I've got- I got you know, way more than cover. that. <laughs> I've got air cover in my bucket too. Yeah. Should the market take a three year downturn to your point, you know, you don't want to have to sell those stocks. Yeah. Yeah. So, and in addition, I have some dry powder so I could always buy more stocks when the market is down, but it's the same point you're trying to make, right? You don't want to sideline too much cash and be a market, try to be a market timer no. because it, it is time in the market, not timing the market. That's totally how I look at it. So, so maybe I'm on the two year spectrum. I don't even yeah. that seems like a lot. 
I know. <laughs> just seems like a lot to have out of the out of the game, but uh, yeah. Man. I, I think I think because I mean I think I understand the way that you're wired enough to know that when you suddenly have a lot less income, and that may be a yeah. glide path thing between you and Laura, and you know however those income sources ramp down your side hustles, you're going to feel a whole lot less anxious knowing that you've got coverage. That's true. Um, sure. from those assets and that, that's how i think about it yeah okay and fritz admittedly and he, he writes about this often takes a more conservative view on a lot of these questions and that suits him and his yeah. wife's approach and their their makeup best and that's great that's a personal decision as long as you've done the legwork and clearly he has to show with these assumptions and these assets this is what it's going to look like over time and we're going to be fine i mean so. he's he's even got like a 75 25 stock bond allocation or something like that. And if I look at the, you know, the, the risk of that portfolio is, is almost like a 50, 50, this it's almost the same as a 50, 50 portfolio. If you mm -hmm. look at it like 50, 50 stocks and bonds, like stocks and bonds. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. There's yeah. lots of ways to cut it, man. <laughs> it doesn't yeah, necessarily it, mean that's more conservative, but he, and, he and also may be dealing with like a different magnitude of, of money, which I, I presume he that's is. That's right. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> Yeah. And, and to be clear, there's so many layers that can go into this level of planning. There's yeah. lots of things you can do to hedge risk, market neutral funds, other alternatives, real estate. This is not meant to be an all encompassing dis discussion. And Fritz doesn't try to do that either. Yeah, no. There's lots of different ways you can manage risk in your portfolio and, and handle, you know, having a diverse portfolio outside of just pure stocks, bonds, cash. Right. And, mo and many of us do. I certainly do have other hedges and. Uh, elements of my portfolio that are meant to try to do risk mitigation. Now, back to your JL Collins idea, does that mean in a 10-year bear market, I'm going to necessarily do as well as a 100% stock portfolio? Of course not. Yeah. But for me, it's about managing those bad years and being comfortable that our portfolio is going to succeed in the long term. 10-year bull market, you meant? That's what I meant. 10-year bull. Did I say bear market? That's I hope there's awful. not a 10-year bear market. Oh, geez. Well, it hasn't happened to date, and let's hope it doesn't happen because there's going to be a lot bigger problems than uh, asset location. Than, uh... Rounding up the article is number 10, implement an annual financial review. Now, in concept, this is already something that's probably very familiar to people on the fire path, yourself included, uh, although a little different angle, right? You yeah. already do regular financial reviews. And here we're just talking about extending that practice to managing your retirement portfolio, right. your asset allocation, your withdrawal strategy, refilling those buckets, et cetera, and making sure that you're managing that. How do you react to this point? No brainer, anything to add? I mean, you know, I do it monthly now, but it's not the same way that um, I think Fritz talks about doing like it yeah. takes him two hours basically. And it's it also has to do with rebalancing and yes. asset allocation and checking in with the spend. And so, yeah, yeah I think loss harvesting. Yeah, it's totally sensible to me. Um, I don't know. Um, hopefully I do it and implement all those steps. He's got a pretty nice little checklist and yes, yeah, I could, I is that something, do you follow his or you have your own or what, what do you do? You know, I realized I, I didn't, you know, as much as I was like an SOP standing yeah. operating procedure driven person, just like I know you are, right. Yeah. We use them for this show. I didn't actually lay out those kinds of checklists for myself. I mean, yes, I'm only in year one, but I am as a result of this article starting to be a little more formal and laying that stuff out yeah. um, in my ever-present spreadsheets. And I think that's going to help make sure that nothing gets left as, uh, behind. And honestly, that you know regular review with Lori is going to be an important aspect of um, feeling better that should something happen <laughs> to me, things are set up in a way that's clear, understandable, and uh, she could execute on um, you know, in, absent me, right? She, and that's yeah. important for all of us to think about. That's why we're doing this series, so she can go back and listen to it, right? That's right. Then she'll have to watch the show. Right. Have you told Laura that? <laughs> no, I haven't. No, but it's probably a good yeah, idea. She yeah. should probably think about that. So, I mean, I mean, for me on net, this article captures an awful lot of meaty points, as, as he said and you did. Yeah. But it's so sensible and it's so important. And it may look overwhelming to somebody who's just found the fire concept and is like, OK, how do I get started? And they find this video and they see this article and like, well, hold on now. Uh, I saw 4% rule and I'm good. And now you're telling me 10 big, you know, <laughs> tranches of activity I have to do. How would you kind of guide somebody who's new to it and maybe a little overwhelmed by this as a thinking about it as a process? I mean, I like that you can kind of step through each one of these and I could see myself in each 
part of this kind of fire path that we're on there. And, you know, I, I think I talked about this earlier, but you, you get to certain steps and you're probably not ready to think about the bucket strategy, uh, maybe on day one, but when you get to day, you know, hundred and you're really kind of getting into this and researching it, like you realize that you do actually need to think about those things that may be far in the future early on. If, yes. if for no other reason than that you set out a plan, like, okay, in two years before retirement or three years before retirement, I really need to think about starting to set up this cash bucket or maybe you have another strategy, but it, it does, um, it does bear thinking about. And that's what I like about each one of these steps. And I can see that there are some places that I need to still work on, even as I'm nearing this goal and some things, some blanks that I need to fill in. So yeah, no, I, I really like it. And I like the, the spreadsheets that he, I, mean, I think if yeah. anyone digs into anything on his site, it'd probably be the bucket strategy and all yes. the things about, you know, drawing a paycheck in retirement. And I mean, just things I haven't even thought about. And then, you know, the hypertext of the web is such that, you know, this is li linking out to Michael Kitsis's blog, which has a whole bunch of stuff on social security. I'm like, Oh yes. wow, that's something I didn't think about. And, you know, so if you're a geek on this stuff, like I am presently, um, it's, it's just a, a rabbit hole that you can dive pretty deep on. And I know you've followed his stuff for many years, right? Do you continue yep. to follow it? I do. I do. I, I follow, I would say I follow fewer sources than I used to, Yeah. but Fritz's, uh, you know, the retirementmanifesto.com is definitely one that I still follow. Uh, if nothing else, you know, it, different people have different perspectives. Yeah. They use different tools. Some of it's very reassuring, like, oh, I'm thinking about that in a similar way. That That's good. I, cause I, I think I'm kind of similarly wired. Other things I'll be like, oh, I hadn't thought of it that way before. Like that's new information. Yeah. I'm going to go back and do a little work and get the spreadsheet out and, and think about this. And all those things give me confidence that I'm still learning. I'm growing. I'm, you know, going to be more comfortable managing different aspects of this as our, my life continues and this portfolio does what it needs to do. So yeah, I do follow it. And, um, you know, I take your point really well though. This, you know, somebody just coming to this, they're going to look at steps eight and nine and say, I don't even know how to approach that. <laughs> right. and, and the answer is you don't have to approach that today, right on day one, as you said, but just starting to think about what should re what is my retirement? What is my ideal retirement look like? How do I spend now? And how do I reconcile those two concepts with my current assets? That's going to get you to those next steps of, okay, where do my assets need to be? How will I draw them down? It's a progression. I so, mean, one way of, yeah. one way that I've looked at this, and I didn't um, follow this exact template, but Laura and I, when we have our monthly meetings, we kind of have a list of things that, um, in Notion, that are things that we need to solve. And, okay. you know, like, so one of the things is, okay, what's our drawdown strategy going to be? And so we have in there, you know, how much cash do we want in you know, there's a link to the post on the bucket strategy. And so it's kind of points to be filled in at a future date, but they are yes. on this master list of, okay, before we do this, these, these are things we definitely need to solve and check back in with. And in notion, for example, I mean, you could assign dates yeah. to this if you wanted to yeah, you love put it on idea. a calendar or something like that. And so it's just a way of taking a big problem and putting some order to it so that you actually eventually will get to it. Um, and I find that I'm often searching for this information online and I'll see a post here or watch a video here. And I don't always have the best way of collating and aggregating that information. So for yes. me, notion tends to be that. Um, yeah. So anyway, yeah, it's a great tool and it's just worth mentioning to folks. It's, it's also free software totally as free. most people use in it for personal use. Highly recommend you check it out, especially if you're somebody that has, you know, doesn't already naturally have systems in place for organizing large sets of information like this that you need to keep returning to and refining and maybe scheduling to Eric's point. Notion's a great tool. I, I use it personally as well. I've got some great videos on it too. Oh, you do? <laughs> oh, where would I find those? <laughs> 30by40.com. No, there's um, on my uh, other YouTube channel, there is a, a Notion. It's called Notion for Architects, but it's actually more broadly applicable to anyone who is looking to implement Notion and the systems around it. There, Notion can, um, if you go searching for Notion content online, it can get really deep, really quick. Oh my gosh, it can. Right. So linked databases, and there's like a whole bunch of information on it. That's uh, it's a little bit um, opaque as as you first look at it, but it's actually a very simple, um, reasonable. Pro I mean, you you picked it up in, in like a day or two. I feel like. 
Yeah, I mean, I think the fundamentals are nice and straightforward. They did a good job with the out-of-the-box experience. Yeah. There's a lot of power that I don't take advantage of, but I don't need to. I'm, I'm okay with my level of use. And But the other thing is there's tons of templates out there totally. and that you can just freely copy from different people and import them into your Notion, and it's super useful. Yeah. Join us as the conversation continues next time on Two Sides of Fi. If you've enjoyed the show, please consider rating it at Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. For show notes, resources, and links to the video version, please check out our website at twosidesoffi.com. Two